I am Jordan Cloud, and welcome to the 905er. The Ontario Liberal Party has finally elected a new leader. Bonnie Crombie has been chosen to lead the party into the next election against Doug Ford and the Ontario PC Party. At the start of the Ontario Liberal Party leadership race, we devoted individual episodes to interviewing each candidate. It was a chance for you, the listener, to learn more about how each candidate wanted to affect change in Ontario and where their priorities lay. We highly recommend you dive in and listen if you get the chance or if you missed it the first time. However, moving forward, it appears that the former mayor of Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie, will need to rebuild the Ontario Liberal Party into a fighting force to return it to government. That gives her two years to establish herself as a potential premier, fill the party's coffers, and build a team to take the former Big Red Machine back to Queen's Park. That's a big order to fill. Does she have what it takes? More importantly, is she what Ontario and the 905 need as an alternative to Doug Ford? We thought we'd ask somebody who spent the leadership campaign researching, deep diving, and asking tough questions of each candidate's camp. So to that end, we welcome to the podcast, Teresa Lubowitz. Teresa is a longtime Ontario Liberal staffer. As a Director of Communications in the Government of Ontario, Teresa shaped the province's response to pressing issues, including affordable housing, the homelessness crisis, child poverty, and food insecurity. She also played a leadership role in launching Ontario's basic income pilot. She has served as a speechwriter for Premiers Kathleen Wynne, Dalton McGuinty, as well as David Peterson. Today, she joins me to talk about why she thinks Bonnie Crombie is what the province needs and what the path forward is to rebuild the once mighty Ontario Liberal Party into a fighting force in the next provincial election. Welcome, uh, Teresa Lubowitz from, uh, well, the Ontario Liberal Party, uh, or not, not officially in any capacity, but a Ontario Liberal of note, we'll say, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll put that in, in the, in the liner notes, uh, for coming on and, and somebody who, who I, I would argue stayed it, try to stay as neutral as possible or out of the fray as much as possible to kind of highlight what the various camps were saying about, uh, in the, liberal leadership race that we just uh, ended uh, a little while back. Uh, so thank you very much for coming out to the 905er. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I, I avoided the word neutral because I'd been on team neutral in the past two leadership races. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to be able to, you know, comment as an independent, if you will, um, and get maybe a bit mouthy about what was going sure. on in the race. Um, okay. And ultimately come to a decision on my own. I, I like that uh, that anal that description much better. Uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> so, an independent liberal is how we'll describe you then. Uh, now, you, you in the course, I, I would highly recommend anyone if you do have a chance. We'll have her uh, her Twitter profile on uh, in the show notes. Go go kind of take a deep dive because she's done a really good job of just starting from day one, the different policy uh, positions from the various camps coming out and just kind of providing like what, what do liberals want to see uh, in their party? Now, ultimately you did settle on Bonnie Crombie as your top choice for, uh, for the ballot. Let's, let's start there for our listeners. 
why was Bonnie Crombie your your pick? Yeah, so it took me a really long time to come to a decision. Like I I had, you know, during COVID, I didn't go anywhere. I was very locked down. I still wear a mask everywhere I go. Um, I'm not I'm not in the best health because I'm a former political staffer and that tends to go hand in hand. Um, so, you know, I've tried to stay safe during the race. So I was actually holidaying in the US finally um, in uh, early November and I was watching the political coverage there um, because it was election night. I think it was like November 8th or something like that um across the country and i pay really close attention to what's going on in the u.s politically in terms of human rights issues whether it's abortion or trans rights or whatever it is um and just how they message things because as as most people know a lot of the conservative messaging and you know maybe even the far right messaging that we get in canada usually is imported from the us or the uk so i've been paying really close attention to that so one of the biggest reasons that i actually landed on bonnie was her support of trans rights um in this race it was something that flared up in august um you know we had we had seen it starting out in the east coast of canada it had moved over to saskatchewan as various premiers were bringing in uh measures into the education system that didn't necessarily make sense probably weren't priorities for the people of those provinces um but were pet projects just of sort of the the more right wing of of canadian politics and uh Stephen Lecce who's the education minister here had made some comments about that he was then echoed by the premier who called educators who were trying to create safe spaces for uh trans non-binary gay students whatever it is um you know he had said that they were indoctrinating indoctrinating students and it took uh you know this happened during sort of the sleepy vacation week of of the leadership race and it took a while to get some of the candidates to comment. Eventually, they all did um, with varying degrees of uh, of success. Uh, but Bonnie was sort of the only one that I felt didn't make any kind of concessions on what we should be doing as liberals. She, you know, she talks a lot about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how that's really a fundamental element of liberalism in Ontario and in Canada. And she really walked the walk uh, when it came to these issues. So that, that was probably one of the number one reasons. Another one was um, the way she and her and her campaign team approached the race. Uh, you know, there was there was candidates who came in with a lot of policy sort of baked in. They they had you know, ideas about what they wanted to do. They were pretty sure they were right about those ideas. Bonnie's approach was very much more, let's consult the people. Um, and, you know, some people make digs about that of, oh, you don't really have any values on your own. Um, I think she has some pretty strong values, but is more open to what that looks mm -hmm. like when you're putting pen to paper, which I think is incredibly <laughs> important in leadership. Um, you know, if I, I've worked with people who are very rigid on these things and think like, you know, in the in the political policy process you have people who write whatever a proposal they have for a policy convention and i think that's exactly how it's going to happen in government and that's never how anything happens there's lots of consultation that happens whether it's with voters stakeholder groups whatever it is mm -hmm. um so i think that approach of being willing to listen to people and going out and consulting is extremely important so i liked that style of leadership um another reason was just politically like a tactical reason which is i think she had the best skill set to actually take on doug ford there's been a lot of talk about bringing up his negatives those have been brought up in in the past two campaigns people are fine with them clearly they voted for him twice um 
But I think she has sort of the retail political skills that he has um, that can sort of neutralize his strengths. And I'm very much of the opinion that if you're going to try and win an election campaign, you have to neutralize the strengths of the opponent. It can't just be mm-hmm. about upping their negatives because I think ultimately people want a sunny vision of the future, like hope and hard work, um, you know, whatever Trudeau's message was in 2015, even Ford, like he's a very affable guy. He's very friendly. He's very happy go lucky people like a happy warrior. And it's really hard to do that when you're bringing up the negatives all the time. So I think she has that sort of skill set that can take on Doug Ford where he's strongest. And then the final reason is, um, you know, I was skeptical of her at the start uh, because she came out with some with some uh, statements that I think, you know, me as a fairly left wing liberal uh, wouldn't necessarily agree with. But I think she proved herself over the course of the campaign. She was willing to put forward some really uh, positive, progressive policy ideas. She's the only one in the race or, you know, in the legislature of any of the leaders right now who's talking about bringing back a basic income pilot, which is something I worked on in government and I think is you know, as we see increased automation and just hard economic times, um, that's going to be crucial to making sure people mm-hmm. can get by. So, you know, that's really important. She's talked about bringing back uh, universal mental health care, um, guaranteeing home care for seniors. Like these are all progressive things that are in stark contrast to Doug Ford. Um, so I think, you know, on all of these different points, she really was the one that came and proved herself. And that's ultimately why I voted her number one. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but yes. the one thing the, the one thing I, I kind of want to go go focus on is your statement on basically her electability uh, to defeat right. Doug Ford. Um, I think for you know winning over liberals is one thing, yep. winning over the entire province is completely different in my opinion. Um, right now, I mean, polls are showing like despite all the scandals that are happening with Doug Ford. Um, all the the investigations, Doug Ford's popularity really, like the PC par- party's popularity, hasn't really taken any hits. They they seem to have recovered their uh, their favorability in the in the general elect uh, yeah. favorability. And I'm wondering, like Bonnie Crombie's first impression to the public with "I want to be the, I want to be the premier of the province." Essentially, what you're doing with this, and her first react, her first impression was her green belt flood right and i'm wondering that that's a first impression for a lot of people and it's really hard like you don't get a second first impression and i know if you go on social media now you see a lot of people describing her basically as doug ford light yep and i'm wondering how how i know you've described all the progressive policies but that is for a lot of people and you know people's attention spans are minuscule when it comes to politics, how do you overcome that first impression of her basically parroting parroting what uh, uh, Doug Ford was hip deep in uh, at the start of this year? Yeah, and I think we've seen a lot of that from the NDP, and I think that's going to be their campaign angle as well, is talking about her being Doug Ford light. And I know that's what some of her opponents in the race also talked about. I think a few things about that. One, first impressions are really important, but to your point, people aren't paying attention. And I remember like watching Stephen Del Duca's poll numbers just crater in the middle of the campaign. They were really good until then. Like there were there was a, a poll put out, I think, I think it was Coletto put out a poll about uh some numbers about various premiers and what their rates are at right now and doug ford's cresting back up as he does because he's the teflon premier um but you know 
I think I think a few things about that. Like one, initial opinions aren't necessarily where people end up. We've seen a lot of movement on that with various leaders, and it really comes down to that last month of the campaign. All the legwork you do is really important, but if it fails to connect in that moment, that's where it becomes a problem. So I think I think Bonnie has time to come back on that. On Greenbelt specifically, I will say, you know, she she committed to creating Greenbelt Trust. What we're seeing in the legislature right now is that. Doug Ford's talked about closing loopholes and making sure the things that he did will never happen again, which is quite funny in itself. But the other part of that is there's been a host of amendments put forward to close the loopholes that caused this problem because the Greenbelt comes up for a 10-year review on, on which land is included. And they voted down all of those amendments. So there's no guarantee that that won't happen again under Doug Ford. Bonnie's plan about the Greenbelt Trust, make sure that that land is protected and perpetuated, that politicians can't touch it. So I think she's done the the policy legwork to talk, to have a good story about, you know, where she's come on that. Whereas <laughs> Doug Ford's story was very much, I told developers I'd sell it off. Then I told you guys I wouldn't. Then I actually did try and sell it off. And now I'm backtracking right. again and no real progress has been made. So I think she has a good angle against him on that and the NDP on that. And as I said, I think, you know, first impressions aren't necessarily lasting impressions. Um, so I think, I think there's some work to be done there, but I think she can, she can fill that gap. The other, uh, I'm going to say albatross around Bonnie's neck. I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure how, how now they said it, I'm not sure that's <laughs> the proper, uh, analysis I should say, but I, I think, I think a, a big obstacle I will say for her to overcome is the fact that during the campaign, a lot of her donations did come from developers. Um, Ms. Saga is well known for being a developer rich yep. uh, bank to pull on. And she did for her, for her campaign. And I mean, to her credit, she brought in a ton of money into the liberal party. However, I'm going to say that that's a, that's a bigger boulder to carry bigger weight to carry in this election now. In light of what Doug Ford has done with his relationship with developers, with the green belt, with uh, uh, urban boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right now, I mean, the big scandal is where everybody's looking into Ontario Place and what's going on there. Yeah. What time will tell. For the part, the Ontario Liberal Party now to be very much a new place for developers to put their money, it's going to be the public perception. Whether or not that's true. I don't think it matters because public perception is all that matters in politics. Agreed. Yeah. So again, how how do how how does she she overcome that uh that perception now? I think there's two fronts to it. So the first one is what she has been saying so far, which is developers have donated to my past campaigns because you know they're in my area and, and they you know, wanted to help get me elected, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not so much about who gives you money, but how you respond to it. And I think her reactions to being funded as a politician have been very different to Doug Ford's. You see Doug Ford with his Dag and Doe scheme, mm -hmm. with wow. with everything that he has done on the financing front, where there are questions asked because of his behavior less than the donations coming in. So she hasn't had that behavior follow those donations. And that is a big point of difference um, that I hope that they bring up. Um, and 
like even to a further point of that, we've seen most of Doug Ford's policy positions. He seems to be a bit of a distant premier where he only cares about something if it's specifically interesting to him. Otherwise, he just lets people go wild. And that's why he's had a number of resignations from his team because right. he hasn't been paying enough attention. So where he does pay attention is usually on pet projects like the waterfront and other things as if, you know, he really just wants to be mayor of Toronto still, um, quite frankly. But a lot of these policy areas where he's been making cuts on, you know, whether it's not the ring of home care protection, like remember that promise, like that never happened. And what we've seen on a lot of those policy fronts is very much, okay, I'm doing things that benefit these developers or these big donors in some way. Um, We haven't seen that from Bonnie. So I think the complaint sort of falls a bit flat when you see that the behavior just simply has not followed the same trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, The other side is just like from a pure rules side of things. I've done a lot of fundraising in the party before, and I was there when we were changing the rules because people didn't like the idea of big money in politics. I hate the idea of big money in politics. I'm somebody who thinks we should get rid of all private donations in politics and make it a fully publicly funded model like they have in some places in Europe. Having said that, I still supported Bonnie on this front because What she's doing is saying this party has not been able to fundraise properly since we've changed those rules. I'm somebody who can fundraise. These are the existing rules. Let's actually work under them. Like this is what is the law right now. This is what's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, What I would like to see from her is perhaps some ideas about how if she was to become premier, she would actually change some of these fundraising rules because there are loopholes um, and there are there is still too much big money in politics and there's ways around these things. So I think it would be great to see her suggest those changes, but she can't do that until she's premier anyway. So for the next two and a half years, the next 30 months, is it smarter for her to just say, oh, well, I'm just going to like ban donations from certain people, which, you know, there's probably a human rights complaint about that. (laughs) Or am I going to follow the actual rules, raise the money that we need to get rid of Doug Ford? Like to me, there's one answer there and it's to raise the money and get rid of Doug Ford. Fair enough. And I I get that. I guess this kind of leads into my my next point is she famously campaigned from the start as being we need the liberal party needs to come back to right of center thinking which i thought was a little bizarre because i thought stephen del duca was supposed to bring the party back to right of center thinking and people clearly did not respond well to that like it it, it was just you your, your previous guy basically was like yes right of center we need that that's the secret to success and I mean, look what happened. Nothing. Um, he he's not there anymore. So the question I kind of have is more maybe an existential one is that is like in light of everything that's going on, is right of center thinking really the right solution to the problems, not just Ontario, but let's be honest, um the entire country uh, is having right now. So I think I have a lot of thoughts on that. So when she said that she we went to the bottom time. of my ballot, <laughs> when she said that she went to the bottom of my ballot, right? Because I am, you know, a left-wing progressive liberal. I'm somebody who thinks we don't actually have a progressive NDP party in in this province historically. Mm-hmm. So that's where I sort of come from at the beginning of this conversation. And when she said that, you know, she clarified later that she meant we were spending too much on healthcare and childcare because the feds weren't spending enough. I am very much of the opinion. I don't care what percentage either of you are spending. 
if the percentage is not enough for the services we need. So, you know, they can have those jurisdictional conversations and premiers and prime ministers always will. Um, but I don't think people care about that. I think people care about, are you delivering the services? Like figure it out, your adults figure it out. Um, so, you know, that was where that comment came from. I don't think it came from a, you know, we need to be more right wing as a party. We need to be a Doug Ford like, cause I've said forever, you know, by the time Ontarians get sick of Doug Ford, they're not, he's not going to defeat himself. They have to have an alternative there that is progressive and interesting. You didn't, you didn't have Dalton McGinty come in and say, well, I just need to be a little less Mike Harris, right? Or knees. Like that wasn't, that wasn't what won. And that's, you know, historically, when you look at change elections, they aren't, oh, we did just a little less um, than the previous government. Like it needs to be a stark difference. Um, which doesn't mean to need, mean it needs to be some like communist utopia plan, right? Like that's not what one Bonnie would ever deliver, but to what people are looking for. I think they want reasonable policies that are filling these gaps that have been, you know, enlarged under Doug Ford. Um, and I think I, you know, my personal belief, and again, I'm not affiliated with her campaign anyway, but my personal belief is that she got bad advice from people who have been around in the party for too long. Um, and there was a big shift in her campaign where some younger folks got involved and started really leading the campaign and I think brought out the real Bonnie, um, which is somebody who passionately cares about these issues. Like, you know, she she doesn't talk a lot about her personal life, but, you know, she grew up in a rooming house with her single mom while her dad had alcoholism problems and mental health issues. And those things are very personal for her, which is why it's in her platform. Um, you know, like a, a universal mental health strategy is not something that somebody's talking about the right of center is going to implement. So I think she's, I think she's proved herself over the race. I think she's drawn more of herself out. And I think she's only going to get better because this was something else that uh, me and some other members had talked about during the race of, you know, who's the most improved player during this race. And I think both Nate and Bonnie did a good job of growing during the race. And that's something else you want to see from a leader is that they can actually grow, change and improve as they go along in an election. And she's shown that during this race. And I think she'll probably do the same during a general election. Uh, your comment about uh, getting advice from some of the, uh, the backroom boys. Um, and this is, Maybe my objectivity is being thrown thrown out the window on this one, but <laughs> I, I used to be a liberal, a liberal party staffer. I know how that dynamic works. And I, a lot of the people that I saw on her campaign, I'm like, yes, they are very common faces. They are the, it's the same group of, uh, dare I say it, men who, yep. who, who always come out for these things. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> Part of what I was looking for in this race, I, I'm no longer I'm no longer a member. I, I did not vote, and I've stepped away. But I, what I was looking for is that renewal, that idea of like we need we've we've set our time in the penalty box. We need new ideas. The Ontario people are looking for something different from us than yep. the return to normal. <laughs> and I saw Bonnie pulling in these old faces. Um. Like Tom, like Don Guy, like Tom Allison, and I say they're nice, they're good, guys, they're smart. But I'm also like, where's the new blood? Where's that? Where's that new? That where's the new person who's really going to be that that injection of new ideas? And I guess my question, you know, does the Liberal Party have that? Do, have they opened the door to get the, get these new ideas in there and take the party in a new direction for what Ontario needs right now? Not a heyday of the past. So I think there's two parts of that question. So the first part is, 
in terms of ideas, um, mm-hmm. one of the first things Bonnie said, because um, I was watching the TVO coverage, so uh, I was not there in person, uh, but I was watching the coverage online and saw when she spoke immediately after. And the first thing she brought up was how she was going to be doing a policy conference next year in 2024. So OLP has had online policy processes. I've been a part of arranging that in the past, um, but they haven't had like a full on, like let's get our cards up as we vote in person policy conference since 2010 in Collingwood, uh, which is a McGinty era policy conference ahead of the 2011 election. Um, that was before my time. <laughs> I was not thoroughly was, involved at that point. So that's how that's how long ago that was, right? Um, so, you know, I think I think that's going to be important for something I talk about all the time is like, what are the next generation ideas? It can't just be, oh, we're, you know, doing a little adjustments to class sizes or whatever. There has to be some kind of era changing approach. Um, because every time a new government comes in, like if you want to usher in a new movement, a new government from somebody who's been in power for by that point, eight years, you have to think of it as a new era of politics and you have to present that vision. Um, so I think that policy conference will be extremely important for that and also for bringing in some of the more progressive folks who maybe didn't uh, put Bonnie at the top of their ballot. So I think the ideas portion of that, there's a place for it to happen. And she seems very willing for that. And I also think because, again, she's not somebody who's so stuck on specific policies or how they will be put together, that she'll be open to actually embracing those ideas. So I think that's really important. Um, on the other side, in terms of sort of generational change in, you know, the people, the talking heads around the leader, um, that was something that concerned me a lot when she started her race. It was very much the same old, what is it? These old scientists from, uh, <laughs> from Star Trek is that kind of idea of like, well, here's these same old guys who are around and, you know, lovely people, smart people. But also I think some of the experiences may be outdated and I've gotten a lot of flack for saying that <laughs> online over the course of this race, which to me, the biggest thing is like, can these organizers who are around the leader, can they learn? Can they recognize the tides that are happening in the public? You know, with housing being the number one issue, we've had a really hard time. I used to work in the Ministry of Housing. We've had a really hard time getting people interested in that issue until recently because it was very much, I'm somebody who's housed, so it's fine. And part of the problem with that is, you know, (laughs) a lot of people in politics who are making decent salaries, they own their homes, they have all these things that maybe a lot of Ontarians don't necessarily have, and the next generation especially don't have. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have a bit of a generational shift to happen um, in order to have people have that sort of frame of reference when they're making decisions and advising the leader. You know, Christine McMillan, she told me before the last election, when she was the campaign director for Stephen Del Duca, that she was too young, she was too old to be the young campaign manager. And she was, you know, in her early 40s. (laughs) And there's something to that, right? You know, the Dalton McGinty era advisors, they were very, very, very young. And it isn't to say that experience doesn't matter. Like, one of the complaints I've heard from people when Trudeau first came in was that a lot of the Cretchen era people were just sort of put on a nice flow and told to take a hike. Um, You need to have those people involved. You need to have that feedback. What most leadership campaigns will do when they're moving into a general election is to have sort of that 40-person talking head advisory panel come in and weigh in on things, but maybe not be driving the day-to-day. You do need to bring in some new folks for that. And I think 
Bonnie really did do that during her campaign. You know, there was the endorsers that were on that list. There was the campaign advisors who were, you know, providing 10,000 foot level advice. But the day to day was run by very young people. Bonnie's a policy person, Fahim. He's very young and very energetic and very excited and still pretty new to politics as well. And there's an energy that comes from that that I think is really important to, you know, build a winning campaign. You do need some of that experience to tell people like, well, this is how you run a successful campaign on the ground. Um, so I think it's really a mix. And I think Bonnie seems to be getting that balance right in in the background from what I've seen. It's interesting you you, you bring that up with a, a younger generation, because that's that's where, gener- where politics always go. They go to that young 20-something mm-hmm. right out of university. I got my- People you know, who have energy and good back still. <laughs> right. And I'm going to change the world and all that. And that's all well and good. But I want to put the pushback. Like my my experience in politics, I've kind of learned is that that's a bit of the problem. Is that you have the policy idea, um, and I, I'm going to back up a bit. And like I think this is the problem with Canadian politics in general, at the federal and provincial level, and even at the municipal level, is that it's removed from the day to day life of everyday people. People right now yeah. feel alone. They are scared. They do not feel there is anybody who's got their back, who is in their corner. Um, and they are up against massive obstacles. They don't, they don't feel secure in their jobs. They don't feel that their, their employer has their back. They don't feel that, uh, they go shopping for essentials of life and they say, nobody's got my back here. And now they're scared. My home might be taken away from me by forces that I don't control. Yep. And they feel very alone. And I found that hiring the 20 something to come in and, and run the shop is all great and wonderful. Cause they say, well, I read this great book and I've, I've read this great article, but it's like, that's great, but it has nothing to do with day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, and the same is with, again, that, that Politico, the, the, the old time Politico who said, well, this is how you run a campaign. This is what, this is what you should talk about. That's going to win. Yeah, that's great. But people get jaded because they say, but you're not talking about what's important to me. Yeah. Um, it's a great way to get people angry maybe, but not any solutions. And I'm wondering, my 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 I guess what, what I'm getting at is my gut is telling me I don't have any data to back this up, but my gut tells me people are scared, they are angry, they are mm-hmm. furious, and they need an outlet. And either one of two things will happen. Either the outlet will be burn it all down and damn you all to hell. And I don't care, liberal, conservative, NDP alike, I will we will throw you on the stockades and we will burn you down. And I am kind of being a bit hyperbolic there but i'm honestly not really i'm not really like the anger is really there and it's like we we you, you really need to be aware of it from all levels or two you have somebody says yeah we need like an fdr a new deal is needed the system is not working for you it is a, you you're you feel it stacked against you you are right and I'm wondering again, it comes down to is Bonnie the right candidate to sell that to Ontario? Say, we need to change, we need big change, not a tax cut, not, oh, we're going to hire yeah. more teachers into school, into our schools, and that's going to solve everything. Like, I mean, a real fundamental of no, a real alignment of government has your back going forward and to make people believe it. And I'm wondering, is Bonnie that candidate to do it? Or so I'm, it- I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up FDR because I've been thinking about FDR and Biden in relation to Bonnie for a while. Um, 
So first I will say on the anger issue, this is something I've been talking about for maybe 15 years at this point, that there's going to be a generational crash where ultimately you have politicians of every stripe who are more interested. Like we, we see this in, you know, and I'm a consultant, but I think a different type, but uh, you see this is in consultant class where we all just like backslap each other and are like, Oh, great job on that campaign. Like during after 2022, the PC sent, um, some funeral flowers to some of the folks on the campaign in liberal circles. And they thought it was really funny. And I was like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, but that's the, that's the thing of like, Oh, we'll get you next time. And it's just this game and it's, right. it's ridiculous. And I think, I think people see that. I think they feel it. And the ultimate reaction, whether reasonable or not is going to be burn it down. This is part of why we saw Trump elected. And yeah. my big concern on this front has always been if you keep having these people in power who just do not respond to people's basic needs, you will eventually descend into fascism. And we are seeing that with a rising far right around the world. We've seen this in recent elections in Europe. Um, you know, I am somebody who is a descendant of Polish refugees from World War II. Until recently, Poland had a government that you couldn't really tell that they had survived the Nazis the way they were behaving, very much like Nazis. And I just it it astonishes me that we just keep repeating these mistakes and not responding to them. So to many, Bonnie would seem like the complete opposite solution to that type of thing. Because you know, somebody who's been around in politics for a while who is not necessarily struggling anymore and um you know, there there is this perception that some politicians have of, well, I know struggle because I grew up in struggle, but usually by the time they're in government, they've forgotten what that feels like and don't respond um, accordingly. But Bonnie is somebody who I think is similar to FDR and Biden in that maybe not the most progressive politician at their lower level of government, but somebody who grows to the size of their fishbowl. So, you know, goldfish famously grow to the size of the bowl that they live in. I think these are the type of politicians like that who move up to a next level of government, see the concerns that people have to that level of government and respond to it. We've seen that with Biden being, you know, basically the biggest new dealer since FDR. Um, I've, I've been reading a book about one of the ar architects of the New Deal, um, a female person, <laughs> um, but you know, this was a thing of, I don't think FDR was necessarily seen as like this big, huge reformer when he was governor or anything like that, but circumstances changed and he responded to them. And I think Bonnie is that type of politician, again, because she's not rigidly obsessed with a certain point of view. And I think what that allows you to do is have the flexibility to be responsive. So <clears throat> I think she is somebody who can do that. I think she has already started doing that by talking about, you know, universal mental health care. Like if we're talking about this general like malaise that people feel about society right now, like that's going to be a key part of it. Um, something I talk about all the time is this flight from reality people have, and it's been going on for quite a while. You see like tea party politics was about that. Um, the opioid crisis is about that. Rampant depression is about that. It's about people being unable to deal with the reality that's surrounding them. All, uh, all the people who are believing in conspiracy theories, that's what that's about. So we have to one have policies that actually alleviate people's pain points. Um, but we also have to think about those broader societal things, uh, um, that can solve that, like mental health strategies and things like that. And I think she has already shown in this race some interest in tackling those society-wide problems um, and also has the flexibility to maybe be somebody who's responsive enough to that. Whereas maybe some of the other candidates, because they came in with certain viewpoints, wouldn't have done that. Um, 
And again, because she's sort of a, a consulting politician, if you will, like she wants to go out and talk to people, that's going to be a big part of that. Something I've been railing on and on about is as a political party, you were talking about you have these talking heads who are sort of detached from from the everyday experience of people. The solution to that is to actually go talk to people. So, you know, in the U.S., where Democrats have been really, really successful in turning the political tides against, you know, far right extremism, even in places like weird places like Kentucky, um, what they've been doing is something called deep canvassing, which is we're not just going to your door to count you as a head to vote for us on election day. We're going to your door to actually talk to you about what you care about and how we can solve that. And, you know, they have these lists of questions they go through and they really, really get into the issues. You know, you've been a political staffer. Usually the instruction is go to the door, find out who they're voting for and leave as fast as you can because we don't have time. Well, the part of the problem with that is because usually you don't canvass until there's an election, which is too late. Anyway, you have to engage people 365, four years of the cycle. Um, But, you know, if you actually go do that, if you talk to people regularly, if you talk to them in depth and actually want to hear what they have to say and show that, you can actually probably put together a policy plan that will actually be responsive to that. So I think I think if if her team understands the values in 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 a practice like that they probably actually will get pretty good data because again that's another problem the party has we haven't had great data because we don't really approach politics that way lately well and that's that's i guess another point and uh, maybe the last point we'll we'll talk about because i don't want to take up too much more of your time but you know I, i guess it comes back to that idea of like oh the old school old boys club if you will you need those new ideas and not just in terms of, of policy, but also like, how do we communicate? Cause that's the biggest thing in politics is how do you communicate yeah. this idea and what is that I'm going to do to you? And I think, you know, we're seeing that at the federal level where I think Pierre Poyev is doing an amazing job of communicating. Mm-hmm. Did you watch message. that 15 minute housing video? I, I did, but I you know what I, I did and I didn't because um, we talk about housing a lot <laughs> on this podcast yeah. and We've, I mean, hey, listeners, go take a deep dive into our back episodes because we pretty much debunk every point that he makes in the episode in his fifteen-minute video. Not gonna lie, it's it's full of a lot of malarkey, but it looked nice, and it made you and it made you kind of angry about the way it is. But it's that that communication piece, right? You can communicate the idea, and you you get politics is not about ideas; it's about emotion. It's about yeah. I'm I'm angry. It's okay to be angry, but we're gonna channel it into something great. And there's new ways of doing that. Like I I remember I, we, I kind of started when this new thing called Facebook and Twitter came around and it's like, well, how do you do that? No, that's a stupid thing. We shouldn't embrace that. And now, you know, you can't, you'd be a fool if you did it. And there's going to be something new down the road. And that's, I guess like that's the thing, like the liberals are kind of on the ropes here. This is if they don't get their act together after this election, I would dare say they are no longer a force to be reckoned with in yeah, Ontario politics. So, you know, how, how does how does Bonnie change the entire organization from top to bottom? Because there are a lot of people who just say, nope, this is what you do. This is how you always do it. And that's not just the way it's going to be. And say, we need to have better communication, you know, you a bit more emotive, a bit more nuanced and new ways of doing it. Like, you know, digital media, I think has to yeah. be a huge part of of it um yeah so i i think i think there's three parts to this um because when people talk about community like i'm a communications person when people think about communications i i think they're a bit vague about it so there's visual communication 
Mm-hmm. There's, you know, written communication slash messaging, what you speak out. And then there's the digital component, which is the sort of newer one over the last 15 years or so. And I remember in the 2011 uh, Liver Party headquarters, that was the first one ever I ever participated in. They had like 30 people watching Twitter all day because that was the first Twitter election. And, you know, that might seem insane now, but that was the energy put into the new digital landscape back then. And we need to have that kind of intention now. So I wrote something yesterday, um, you know, sort of what the next steps are for Bonnie. And my big piece of that is reshaping the party's digital landscape, because we have, you know, we have a team that's hired on to do voter ID through the database, but, and they sort of tack on some other stuff on top of that. You really need dedicated teams for each of the different components of what digital is. So, you know, Nate's team did an incredible job with visuals. Um, and I think if Bonnie is smart and if if his team is amenable, uh, that that would be a big push forward is actually bringing in that design team to do those incredible visuals and, and that really fast turnaround on responses on the digital landscape. Um, number two, I think Nate was very effective in his messaging. I thought it was very, very clear, very to the point and spoke to people's actual experiences. I think Bonnie's really good at the sort of like hope and idealism side, which I think is a little bit where Nate lacked. So if if they could actually merge that kind of messaging and have very, very clear communication, I think that's really, really key. And that means having, you know, like a dedicated writing team actually doing that. Um, But, you know, on the digital side, there's a whole element there to your point where I, I, you know, I was watching the show, the circus, which has just come to an end. And they were talking about how the the 2024 uh, presidential campaign is going to be the first AI election. And we've seen, you know, elements of this before, but in terms of both how campaigns run, they're going to be using a lot of AI to push stuff out very quickly, um, which could create some uh, issues with accuracy and things like that. Um, Not that campaigns usually care about that anyway, but uh, there's going to be a lot of pushing out on that, but there's also going to be disinformation coming out. There's going to be, you know, deep fakes and things like that. It's very concerning. So I don't think as a party, we're remotely ready for any of that. I think we need a dedicated team looking into all those things. Like uh, the thing I said to all the campaigns is, um, you know, people are always like, oh, we need a we need a war room to do messaging against Ford or whatever. I don't care about that. Like, sure, fine. But what what the party actually needs and what probably all the parties need is somebody actually looking regularly at where the disinformation trends are coming from, uh, what the alt-right space is doing on on messaging at a given time. Because as we've seen in the U.S., once that stuff takes hold, it's really hard to break people from. Mm-hmm. So if you can actually be paying attention in advance and then forecasting what that will look like when it comes to Canada, you can actually inoculate people against that messaging in advance. And I think that's an enormous part of both the messaging work that Bonnie's team needs to do and also the digital stuff that they need to do. Um, because we, you know, we've seen that with the the parents' rights thing. Like that's where that came from. It came from the US. Um, yep. And, you know, Glenn Youngkin was the one who sort of started that and ended up losing his majorities in his uh, state house. So that was good. Um, but, you know, this is this is something that I don't think progressives, whether NDP or, or liberals, have any real handle on and they are going to need to do if they want to win. Like, I remember in the 2018 election, we were having debates in party headquarters about whether we were doing enough on digital. The digital folks were obviously saying no. The traditional media types were saying, we just kind of put more ads on TV, which, as you know, are very expensive. Meanwhile, 
the PCs were advertising to 18 year old boys on, on Xbox live, like just completely way, way, way further than any, anything we were thinking about. And they've only gotten better in that time. So, you know, I think there is a tremendous amount of work to do on that front as like a political party, but just also as like a progressive movement. Um, and I think conservatives are way out ahead on it. The only real silver lining is that political parties tend to get into power with big advances in tactics. We saw this with, you know, Obama in 2008, but by the time Clinton came around, they were very much behind the eight ball from what uh, Republicans were doing. So that is a silver lining is that maybe the, the PCs have sort of been coasting during this time on that, because when you get in government, you get distracted and you do other things and you don't really focus on party building. So there is a silver lining from that, but the only way that that pays off is if you actually put your head down and do the work and get up to snuff on all of these different things. And we're just nowhere near that as a party right now. So to me, that's not job number one for Bonnie. That's fundraising, but it's, you know, it's pretty high up there in the list. All right. Well, I'm going to say that's a good spot to end off the episode. Thank you very <laughs> much, Teresa, for coming on. Um, Cause I, I know we could probably go on for like this could Forever. be like a five-part episode on, yeah. <laughs> on politics, but I, I have to call it a quits uh, for the safety of our listeners who are probably hopefully playing <laughs> to their parking spots at work and, and, uh, but start today. Thank you very much, Teresa, for sharing your, uh, your insight and uh, all the best. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.